0: Well, hi, another day, another podcast. This is Gary Zacharias with The Apologist Bookshelf. I've got another uh, slightly older book, probably 20 plus years old, but uh, the information in it will not go out of date. It's called When Cultists Ask, subtitle: A Popular Handbook on Cultic Misinterpretations. Norm Geisler and Ron Rhodes, pretty prominent uh, apologists, are the authors of this. If you know them, you know uh, Norm Geisler passed away, but uh, I don't know how many books. Last count I heard was over 40 books that he was author or editor of. And Rodden Rhodes has written several really good works on different cultic groups. And I know the word cult has kind of a negative uh, connotation to it. So maybe if you just want to say religions that deviate from traditional historic Christianity, that's fine. The point is that a lot of these groups the number one thing that they'll do is twist scriptures to fit their particular doctrine so that's the point of this book they point out the authors say that we're living in a time period where uh, odd groups new religions are exploding uh, people are kind of wandering away from traditional christianity and uh, so they want to be able to have christians traditional Christians go through the Bible with people who believe things that are different and uh, hear what they have to say you know, with polite uh, listening skills and then talk about the way that that verse should be interpreted. And so I like what they do at the beginning. They, they get into the whole idea of what, what do they mean by cult. Uh, and there are some recognizable traits, although I think it's a little fuzzy, but they said there are some doctrinal characteristics of a cult For example, they'll emphasize a new revelation from God. They'll deny the sole authority of the Bible. You know, they'll find something else that they'll attach to it. A denial of the Trinity, a distorted view of God and or Jesus, and maybe a denial of salvation by grace. And I think that's probably one of the key things, the denial of salvation by grace. It always involves doing something. And then they say there's a second set of characteristics for a cult, Sociological characteristics, very authoritarian, they're exclusive, they're dogmatic, they're closed-minded, they uh, sometimes even antagonistic, and then they said they're moral characteristics of a cult, too, and these are where the cults really start dropping into the deep end. Uh, legalism, sexual perversion, intolerance, sometimes physical or psychological abuse. Now, with that being said, I remember, I'm, I'm telling you what's in the book But I think when we talk about like Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, Mormons, people like that, we're probably really not talking as much about cult as we are a deviant religion. So remember, they're going to go discuss both sets of of groups, cults, and what they call deviant religions and how they've twisted uh, many of the Bible passages. So let me me do this. Uh, There's so much good stuff in here. I'm just going to have to dip in and out, and I'm going to take you to the book of James to start with here. So, here's how they go about their um, untwisting, they call it, of Scripture. They give you the verse, in this case, James 1.5, and here's what it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's the New American Standard. So, they start off with the question, James 1.5, does this verse indicate we should pray about the Book of Mormon to see if it's true? That's what Mormons say. They'll say, well, you need to pray about it, see if it's true. And they give you a reference that they're not making this up. They take you to Moroni 10 verses 4 to 5 in the Book of Mormon. And uh, then after they've let The other group, in this case the Mormons, have their say, what they believe about this verse. Then they spend time in a section called Correcting the Misinterpretation. And so they say, for example, in this case, the meaning of James 1.5, you've got to read the verses around it, verses 2 to 4. And James is anticipating that some of his readers are going to say, well, I don't understand what's going on in my life. I'm dealing with trials. If I could just see, if I could just understand what God's purpose is for these trials, James says, well, in that case, ask God for wisdom. So you don't have to pray for things like whether to worship another god. It's already in the Bible told you that's wrong. You don't have to pray about whether to participate in spiritism. That's already said in Deuteronomy that that's wrong. He says we don't need to pray about the Book of Mormon because God has already condemned other gospels. They contradict what's found in the Bible. It's Galatians 1, 6 through 9. And then they said, prayer is not the test for religious truth. We're supposed to test all things, not pray to have a subjective feeling. Of course, that's what it comes down to, isn't it? Pray about the Book of Mormon. Well, I prayed, and I just felt that it was true. That's subjective. That's not objective. That's not out there. That's inside you. And they said, uh, for example, uh, they mentioned the Bereans in Acts 17, they believed in prayer, but their barometer for truth wasn't prayer. It was scripture. So they correct that interpretation. I think that's good. And then, of course, I think this is a, a really big one. I don't know how much time I'll be spending on it, but it's worth spending a little more time on. This is James 2, 21. And uh, what did they say there? Well, James says, was not Abraham our father justified by works? And we hear this so often that James says we're justified by works, in other words, that's how you get saved, contrasted with Paul, who says, just believe. You're justified by faith. So now we've got this apparent contradiction. Paul says justified by faith. James apparently says we're justified by our works. Which is it? it As Mormons cite this verse to argue that you must have works. Roman Catholics also say that our ultimate justification is not from just simply belief in Jesus, but it's works as well. So it's more than one group that pushes the idea of works, and they use that from the book of James. So they spend some time on this. They said James is not talking about justification before God. In other words, you stand before God and say, see, I did this, I did that, and I did this other thing, and God says, oh, good for you, all right. What James is talking about instead is justification before other people. Now, how do we know that? Well, James stressed that we should show, that's verse, verse, sorry, start again, chapter 2, verse 18. James says we should show our faith. So if you show it, it's got to be seen by others, works. And then he acknowledges that Abraham was justified by faith, not works. He says that in verse 23. <clears throat> the same chapter, Abraham believed God and is reckoned to him for righteousness. Then when he adds that Abraham was justified by works, that's verse 21, what he's saying is if you were walking alongside Abraham, you would see him doing things like offering his son on the altar. And so it's talking about justification before the watching world. Paul is talking about justification before God. And uh, these two authors tell us Romans 4 5, for example, says, and this is Paul, But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Titus says it's not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to his mercy he saved us. What about Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? Boy, this, these are some of my favorite verses. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and not that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So, big picture here. Paul is saying the root of your justification is faith. James is saying the fruit of justification is works. So Paul says, here's how you get saved. James says, this is how you show that you're saved. You're showing out of gratefulness to God you do works. So it's they're both acknowledging each side of the point. We're safe by grace, through faith. And then Paul, knows. Paul adds something there in Ephesians right after it. I've used this as my life verse. Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So right after declaring that we are saved by faith, then he says, and God has prepared works for us to do. So, They have a little chart at the bottom of the page here that says Paul talks about justification before God, James justification before humans. Paul talks about the root of justification. James is talking about the fruit of justification. Paul says you're justified by faith. James says you're justified for works, not by works. Paul says faith is a producer of works, and James says works is the proof of faith. So I, I hope that clears up. I think that's really important to know, and I think you're going to run into that if you're talking to anybody who believes you've got to work your way to heaven. Let me pick up another spot here. Let's go to the book of Hebrews. I think this is fascinating because uh, I've had Mormon neighbors, and we've talked about some of these verses in the past. They believe that God the Father has a physical body of flesh and bones. Really? Yeah. For example, they'll go to Hebrews 1:3 and it says of Jesus that he's the exact representation of God's nature. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That Jesus did that. So they say, well look, Mormons will say God must have a physical body because if Jesus is an exact representation, then he had a physical body, so did God. And he sat down to father's right hand, literally sat down at his right hand. So he must have a physical body of flesh and bones. Well, here's uh, what Geisler and Rhodes have to say about that. Over and over again, in the Bible, God is a spirit, John 4, 24. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. That's Luke 24, 39. So you can't think of God as a physical being, but why would we talk about God's right hand? The right hand for the Jews was a metaphorical reference to a place of honor. So Jesus is accorded a supreme honor as the triumphant Lord that rose from the dead. Well, what about the part that Christ is an exact representation of God? Does that mean he has a physical body and God did too? No, it means Christ is fully God, just as much as God the Father. So Jesus says, he who seen me has seen the Father. But the Mormons, and I get this, this makes sense, they fail to recognize that Jesus had two natures. He had a divine nature and he had a human nature. So he's fully God and fully man. That's part of the Trinity there. And uh, we understand that. In his human nature, Jesus had a physical body. Well, the Father, Father God, never became incarnate, and so he doesn't have a human body. But as far as Jesus' divine nature... He is a representation of God, the exact representation, because he's just as much God as is the Father. So I think that's important to talk uh, to have in your um, in the back of your mind if you're talking to Mormons, for example. Let me pick uh, another one here. Wow, this is a toughie. Second Thessalonians one nine. The verse is talking about what's going to happen to the wicked after they die. <clears throat> it says they will suffer eternal destruction. Well, Jehovah's Witnesses pick up on that and they say, oh, well, the destruction of the wicked is everlasting in the sense that they are forever annihilated. They cease to exist. But Rhodes and Geisler say destruction doesn't mean annihilation. Otherwise, it wouldn't be everlasting. Annihilation just takes a second, boom, and it's over. So if someone's going to undergo everlasting destruction, then they have to have everlasting existence. Just as endless life belongs to Christians, endless destruction belongs to those who are opposed. They're not ceasing to exist. It's a continual and perpetual state of ruin. That's what they're talking about, destruction. The, the wicked will suffer eternal ruination is what they're talking about. Now, how? why do we think that that's uh, the case? By the way, we're getting into the whole argument of is hell a forever punishment or just a annihilation. But they give you lots of verses here that suggest it's an everlasting consciousness for the lost. Uh, they get the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. That man was in conscious torment. That's Luke 16. It says there's no indication that it was ever going to cease. Jesus talked about people in hell weeping and gnashing their teeth. That means they're conscious. That's Matthew 8, Matthew 22, 24 and 25. In Matthew 25, hell is said to be of the same duration as heaven, everlasting. If it's everlasting and the punishment is everlasting, then they must be everlasting. You can't suffer punishment unless you exist to be punished. It says it would be contrary to the created nature of people to annihilate them. They're made in God's image and likeness, which is everlasting. So, Good, land. there's so many good things to cover in this book, but I will stop at this point. But I'd like you to consider this. Again, it's an older book called When Cultists Ask. And because it's older, uh, I don't know if you can find it uh, as a new book, but I bet it's available as a uh, used book, either at your Christian bookstores, uh, on your uh, church campus. Uh, Maybe Amazon has some. But it's worth digging it out and seeing if you can find it because we all have to have something when we are thrown a Bible verse. And by the way, it kind of illustrates the point here, doesn't it? Greg Kokel always says, never read a Bible verse. And that's what we get into sometimes with uh, people at our door or talking with our neighbors. They throw a Bible verse at us. And we kind of need to know the context, you know, knowing several verses or a paragraph or a chapter But anyway, this book will give us some good answers back to the the true meanings of the Bible. And Geisler and Rhodes do an excellent job. So when cultists ask, again, I'm not trying to insult anybody by calling them the cultists. I'm just using the title here. But it deals with aberrant religions as well as cultic groups. And uh, something you might want to pick up if you can find one someplace. Okay, well thanks and let's do another podcast soon.